referendum has been held, the letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit with me, Jack Good, and my co-host, Brian Mann. Yo, what's up, guys? Can we just take a breath? <sighs> a lot has happened. <laughs> to say the least. So, David Davis has resigned. Boris Johnson has resigned. Theresa May's government has put forward a white paper called the Checkers Deal. Now, that's a lot to digest. In fact, so much to digest that we've put it into the second part of the pod. Yeah, we have really interesting guest from the Institute of Economic Affairs. It's a great chat. And I think it's worth putting into its own part of the pod because it is really significant. Yeah, I mean, that period alone from from Friday week last to last Thursday was, you know, another completely mental week in British politics. So, in the second part of the pod, you speak to... Uh, Victoria Hewson um, from the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, a free market think tank uh, based in London. So, let's take that as read, and if you want to catch up with that, skip straight to the second part of the pod. Mm -hmm. But that was last week. A lot has happened since then. There's been a lot of votes. We won't go into every single vote. Um, But it's probably worth noting the EORG, Jacob Rees-Mogg's European Research Group's amendments... The Northern Ireland Amendment, some people said, made the Checkers deal, just killed it. So dead it in the water. Dead in the water. And what, like, that? basically the amendment meant that Northern Ireland couldn't be separated from the United Kingdom. Therefore, meaning that the special status that a backstop would create would be null and void. Yeah, that's it in essence. Um, but that was only one of numerous votes that were all very tight. Yeah, all very tight, very technical around tax and VAT and... Uh, European Medicines Agency involved a whole host of things but you were saying that one of the groups is that's worth watching is the Labour leavers yeah I think they're the most uh, underreported groups in the UK Parliament there's only maybe four or five of them uh, really Um, and at every crunch vote in the last six months they've backed the Tory party they've backed the Tory government Um, and the votes this week um, where, you know, there was four or five votes in it and there was, there was four or five of those guys. Um, and it's it really worth keep, just keeping an eye on them at all times to see if they can in any way be flipped. I, I doubt it, but... And the Times of London's Sam Coates actually has a great little breakdown. He's, he's devised 14 tribes, so that Labour group we just spoke about is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Theresa May's uh, and our government's loyalists, there's the hard Brexit European research group, there's the parliamentary Brexiteers, there's the soft Brexiteers, there's the Brexit delivery group. But one man has his own group. One man stands alone outside the mainstream of his party. Who is that man? He's not the hero we deserve, but he's the hero we get. Uh, Sammy Wilson. I mean, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it, that he has his own group in this, you know, albeit slightly fictitious grouping. Yeah, I mean, I I think that piece is, you know, a little Mickey taken, but it's not a million miles away from the truth. I can count seven of them off the top of my head, like the rest of them, maybe, but it it just shows how difficult it is for Theresa May 
to get anything through Parliament. That is the takeaway point here. And I think that's a point that, that Antonis de Simon Coveney really, I mean, really almost vents on. Actually, we'll have a listen to him now, will we? It is very frustrating for countries like Ireland and many other EU countries and certainly frustrating for the EU task force to, to be negotiating with a country that, that keeps changing its position. Um, and, and when there is a new settled position published in a white paper, uh, then uh, there is a, there's a parliament majority to support potential changes to that. And actually, I suppose it would almost be neglectful to mention, not to mention um, that in all the midst of all these tight votes, that the DUP have someone suspended. Yeah, Ian Paisley Jr. knocked out for 30 days from the 4th of September. Suspended in, in what could be really sub- significant and substantial votes. Absolutely. You know, there was a vote one of the nights this this past week that there was three votes in it. So, like, literally every vote counts. And, I mean, it, it seems quite a circular argument and almost a very predictable argument. Sinn Féin's abstentionist policy again to the fore with Fianna Fáil particularly trying to batter them over it. Yeah, all the parties in in Ireland this week coming out and saying, oh, the Shinners could come out and, you know, defeat Brexit or defeat a hard Brexit. I'm sceptical personally that they could do that. But, Numbers. Well, but their line is we were elected on a mandate of abstention and it doesn't seem that that's going to change. Yeah, absolutely. So the, we're, we're not going to spend much time on it because it, it, it's a circular argument, isn't it? It's moot, Jack. And speaking of moot, or what we thought was moot, I should say, hard Brexit very much coming to the fore. And in fact, our government are doing something about it. There's actually, it's not just theoretical, there's actually something happening. Yeah, so a paper has been uh, signed off by Cabinet this week uh, to, to take out a number of actions. One of them is to hire a thousand new people to do customs checks and do kind of veterinary checks. Um, in in, a, in that scenario to prepare for it. So this Brexit jobs bonanza isn't the financial services, it, it's vets? No, I thought it was that or you know it's maybe a, IT, but a, clearly not. A different kind of animal. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we do the podcast, folks. So yeah, w- one other thing worth mentioning is uh, the, the Cabinet have also signed off on uh, We Understand that they're going to remove their oil reserves from the UK. So scared are they of a hard Brexit. Um which is a very kind of practical measure to take and one that is kind of easily understandable, which is probably why it was briefed to the press. Um, But also one final point on this no deal preparation is that the Irish government continue to state that they refuse to prepare for a hard border. So that's making it very clear and very explicit that that is one thing the Irish government, as we've talked about a million times on this podcast, will not stand for. It's even in our... Sigjin. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worth saying to bring it, wrap it all right back around um, before we go into the second half of the show is that we can have the white paper, we can have the preparations for no deal and all that. We still have not signed off on the withdrawal agreement. We still have not signed off on the backstop agreement. There's so many balls in the air and we're going into summer recess. Let's have our own recess here and uh, we'll be back after the break. When we leave the European Union, we won't have to impose any border. Uh, the problem here is that uh, the British government's stated position uh, in December and still now is that they want to ensure that there is no border 
uh, infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, that there is no barriers to trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that the United Kingdom is leaving the customs union and single market. Those three things are simply not compatible. Those three things are simply not compatible. But if we do, that's what the European Union wants, and we go along with it. The losers will be the Republic of Ireland. The economy of the Republic of Ireland would be in very bad shape. So now on the show, we have uh, Victoria, um, who works for the Institute of Economic Affairs over in the UK, which is a, it's fair to say, a right wing think tank. Well, we would say free market. So we are not politically aligned, but we do campaign for free markets, free free trade and, and freedom generally. So I suppose, Victoria, it's been a, an absolutely massive seven days here at, uh, or just in Brexit in general. I suppose let's kick off with the white paper, like what's in it? Is it a big deal? And, you know, what's your what's the IEA position? On it, I suppose? Well, it's, it certainly has been a big deal. Um, if nothing else, I suppose it's fleshed out some issues um, and put some substantive words down on a page that people can actually work around from now on. In terms of the substance, though, I would say... Um, it's the International Trade and Competition Unit at the IEA. We are quite troubled by it. Um, and I can understand why David Davis, Boris Johnson and a few others in junior roles felt it was untenable for them. Really, it's this principle around a common rulebook for goods, which, frankly, calling it a common rulebook is... Um, a bit of spin, really, because it's just the EU rulebook. Yeah. And then there's this idea that it would only be applied to those specific regulations that attach to goods that are necessary to get the goods across the border. Again, I think that's <laughs> that's a bit naive to think that you can easily delineate rules around goods and pick and choose which rules you're going to harmonize on and then there's the franking policies as well where the the white paper says that the uk will continue essentially to harmonize on things like state aid and competition law and will include this non-regression idea that will essentially keep us tied into all manner of other horizontal areas like employment environment social policy and employment policy. So it gives far too much away already, and this is before it's even had contact with the EU side. And the the, the big thing that the Prime Minister in trying to sell this has been saying is that it it gets rid of free movement of people. And what it talks about instead is this idea of a mobility framework. And certainly from the IEA perspective, we would be looking for and expecting a very liberal approach to movement of people going forward, although clearly not on the same basis that we have now. The fear amongst many in the Conservative Party is that this is just one area where we will end up giving more and more concessions and we'll probably you know, end up with free movement of people coming in. The other quite funny 
well, dark humour aspect is that um, the Prime Minister talks about we will no longer be making vast payments to the EU budget, to which, you know, you've got to think, right, so there'll just be quite large payments to the EU budget then. Is is that what we're sort of being primed to, to say, well, yes, but we kept to our red lines because they're not vast, they're just big. Um, and, and so there's there's a lot of room, really, to expect further um, salami slicing as, as it progresses through the negotiations. So I suppose you've outlined a lot of problems that you and David Davis and the IEA would have with it. You know, from David Davis's resignation letter, Boris's resignation letter, you know, what's the alternative? Like, the, there didn't appear to be any alternatives in, in their resignation letters. Well, interestingly... Um, the website Conservative Home, which is the sort of um, it's a it's a non-official news outlet for conservative-minded people and party supporters, they've been publishing what is claimed to be the alternative white paper that David Davis and his team had been working on in Dexu until they were sidelined and as they would see it hijacked by the Prime Minister and her core team that she's moved into number 10, um, Ollie Robbins, who's now seen as a bit of a villain of the piece. And this alternative white paper um, worked on the basis of a more usual free trade agreement that you would expect between two neighbouring territories who want to have a close trading relationship with each other without harmonising to each other's laws and accepting the jurisdiction of the courts of of one of the parties and their idea on the regulatory aspect was to go for a level of mutual recognition of our regulations whilst acknowledging that the two sets of regulations would diverge over time Um, but you would put a framework in place whereby you would say actually that regulation's just gone too far. We don't trust that your goods are safe anymore or they don't meet our um, quality standards anymore. Therefore, you can't automatically bring those goods into our market. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, sorry, if I could just hop in there, you talk about divergence over time and I suppose Theresa May has even held that out as a possibility um, going into the future. But, you know, this is the the podcast Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. Mm. It's a bunch of Irish guys kind of chatting about it. You know, that that regulatory divergence, if not now, uh, but over time, does that not eventually lead to the the necessity to have checks at the border at Northern, well, uh, between you, Ireland and Northern this, Ireland. You've hit on the, the, the crux of the whole approach is driven by the need not to have a goods border on the island of Ireland. That's really what this whole approach comes down to because the British government doesn't think that the EU will offer a free trade agreement in normal sovereign-to-sovereign terms to the United Kingdom as a whole, they will only offer it to Great Britain and the backstop would kick in Mm -hmm. for Northern Ireland under which Northern Ireland would become this special zone that's still in a customs union and single market. And that's really driving this whole approach is the fear of a a customs border. Now, for for me, uh, and I suspect for um, for David Davis and and, and others, um, although I haven't heard him speak on this issue specifically, that's really, um, I don't know how how to put this. Um, it's 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 allowing a, a 
a particular aspect of managing a border to drive something that really impacts mm-hmm. on the whole future constitution and economy and the very democracy of our country. And as we would see it, you should be formalizing and agreeing what kind of trade deal you want and then making it work for the purposes of the Irish border, not the other way around. So so you disagree with the sequencing of the negotiations in the very first instance. Uh, would that be a fair synopsis of kind of your solution to the problem? Because we're just, Irish people are like, we're very curious as to, you know, what is the solution? Like if one exists, that's fine. But we have, I, broadly speaking, we have yet to hear one. You know, this solution from Theresa May on goods is kind of approaching one. But you're kind of thinking, go the other way around, do the trade deal and figure figure it out. Yes, I mean, sort of. I, I, I don't I think it should have been concurrent in the sense that the Irish border is clearly a very serious issue that should be at the forefront um, of, of every of both sides minds um, for, for a whole range of issues uh, of reasons. But um, in terms of the sequencing, I have to say Ireland and the other 26 or Barney and um, Task Force 50 have, have played a blinder on this. They're, they have completely outplayed the the UK government negotiators on this with the sequencing and with the terms of the joint report in December. Now, in terms of what could actually be an alternative to this, um, I've, I've done a lot of work on this together with um, a lawyer um, from Northern Ireland as well. And I've been working mm-hmm. quite closely as, with some customs experts in a trade association that focuses on technology solutions for international trade. So my my view here is you have to think about what a border is actually for in terms of goods. Putting aside movement of people where I think we can all be reasonably confident that the common travel area will um, will see us through in terms of people moving across the border and working in our in our respective countries. So if you focus on goods, what is the purpose of what happens at the border? There's the tax issue, which is the customs border, and there's the regulatory issue, um, which is around standards. And then people always say, but there isn't any border in the world that's fully automated and drive-through. And I think that that's really because you can do these compliance activities to do with tax compliance anywhere and you can do the regulatory oversight and market surveillance anywhere it's just in most cases in most international borders it's easier and more convenient to do it at the border however in this case very unique circumstances it clearly isn't easier to do it at the border so you do it elsewhere, you do it more dispersed, you can follow up your customs compliance for the payment of import duties, if any, which in the vast majority of cases, there won't be any due. You just need to check that the declarations have made appropriately. You, you can do that remotely. The customs authorities from the UK and Ireland both suggested an early stage that they were confident that they could do their compliance activities away from the border. And similarly with Um, with standards and regulation compliance, the reality of international trade 
even now for goods coming outside of the customs union from China or America or wherever it is, the vast, vast majority are not checked at the border. Um, you rely on market surveillance trading standards to um, to make sure that traders are not selling non-compliant goods. On that, we had um, Ali Renison, who who I'm sure you, you you come across in your time in the UK from the IOD on a couple of months ago, and she said, you know, it's not that it can't be done necessarily. It's just that the way you could do it has never been done before. That it's a is that a fair I, synopsis? No, that, that's 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 true. Um, the 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 techniques and processes are broadly all in existence already the technology is there <coughs> excuse me the processes the processes of remote compliance activity um are already done and are very widely used for trades coming out from outside the customs union and obviously the, the familiar example of the norway sweden border and the switzerland borders um what is different is bringing all of those technologies and best practice techniques and processes together in one place you know there's no doubt about it. that's a very ambitious plan that you've laid out it hasn't happened anywhere else in the world and you noted a few minutes ago that the british government got completely outplayed on mm-hmm. the negotiating timelines what confidence would you have in the current government to have that ready after the transition period is finished in your ideal well, scenario i suppose so the other thing is that you wouldn't really have to because on one level <clears throat> um the uk government can unilaterally say we are not going to check things coming in to northern ireland from the republic of ireland that's basically saying we are confident in the um, the standards and regulations of your products because our regulations are still the same and we will carry out surveillance and enforcement of any customs matters in the same way as we do now for VAT and excise duty and fuel duty. So the UK can can do that. It would be a sort of a patch pending bringing in a, a you know perhaps a, a better more up-to-date solution but that would be your fallback solution and you know presumably the Irish government would have to do the same because I think the the, um, the Taoiseach has been quite clear that he has no intention of building a border fence and he has the support of um, of the European Union on that. I think Jean-Claude Juncker said that to a statement in Parliament, in the European Parliament the other day. So that really should be the, um, I guess, the backstop. The backstop to the backstop, or the backstop yes, to the transition period. in the absolute worst case scenario, the backstop to, to no deal, because don't forget the backstop that is currently on the table whereby the whole United Kingdom stays in a in a customs union effectively. That only comes into effect mm-hmm. if the withdrawal agreement is agreed. So if there's no deal, 
there's no backstop. And that's why I think, actually, although, as I say, the, the Irish government has has very astute in how it's positioned itself, it's also a very high-risk strategy because if there's no deal, there's no backstop. Let's move on to the politics of it. So Davis resigned, then Johnson resigned. It looked like things were going to topple over. Now there's a, a sense that maybe Theresa May is slightly stronger at the moment. Is all that kind of immaterial? Like, this deal won't fly in the UK Parliament or the EU Parliament uh, or with her with the EU negotiators. Do you agree with that? Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say. I wouldn't have thought it would fly with the European Union because it, it breaks up the sacred four freedoms because services are not part of the common rulebook. And obviously... People are not part of the, the, the movement of people is, is not going to be part of the common rulebook. But my sense is that the EU side have been reasonably warm towards the suggestion. Nobody's dismissed it out of hand as they have done in the past with talk of magical thinking, which is interesting because the customs model outlined there is pretty mm-hmm. much the same as it was before when it was dismissed as magical thinking. But my my fear is um, that the uh, commission negotiators will sort of be reasonably receptive to this for a while, play it out, run down the clock, and then at a minute to midnight hit us with the only deal that's on offer. And that will be full customs union and full single market. And then that really does come down to, are we in a position to say no to that? And then it comes to the parliament, the UK parliamentary question of um, what what would the what would you what would the UK parliament do in that situation? In terms of the prime minister's position, I think you're right. Towards the back end of this week, things stabilised a bit for her. Um, the the two ministers who resigned, or or rather, um, more specifically, Steve Baker, who was. Um, one of the junior ministers in Dexu was very clear mm-hmm. that he thought that now, as a backbencher, he would be working to change the policy, not to change the leader. And the potential vote of confidence challenge hasn't emerged this and and other sort of senior Brexit supporting backbenchers have made similar noises. Jacob Rees-Mogg and others have said, we're still supporting the Prime Minister. We just want her to do what she has told us for the last two years that she was going to do. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, th- that that's a fair synopsis, but isn't the reality also that, you know, these guys just don't, they don't have the numbers to challenge her. Like, they can, they can trigger a leadership kind of or a vote of confidence but they don't have the 159 votes in the Tory party to get rid of her. Um, That's probably true and the other twist in the leadership challenge tale is under those rules if you challenge if you if you call a vote of confidence and then the Prime Minister wins the vote of confidence you can't do it again for 12 months so it's it's real you know you've got one shot at this um, which is certainly going to be one of the reasons why some calmness has has come back to the internal politics. In terms of the overall parliamentary numbers, though, this has opened up a second flank of um, of 
risk for the progress of any legislation through Parliament because now the um, Brexit supporting backbenchers who were previously falling behind the government whip on everything are now starting to table their own amendments and the, the, the government may well end up having to try and rely on opposition votes from Labour, Liberal Democrat, SNP mm-hmm. parties to get this deal through if if it if this deal or something like it is ultimately agreed by the EU, people like Rhys Mogg and Steve Baker and David Davis will likely vote against it. And so the government will be relying on opposition votes to get it through. The question then is, will the opposition uh, vote for this deal than the default of no deal? Or will they be more opportunistic and seize on the opportunity to defeat the government, which would inevitably, I would have thought, bring down the government. Could they could they resist that opportunity? I'm not I'm not so sure. Because don't forget Corbyn is a huge Eurosceptic yeah, himself was, was... and is secretly or not so secretly delighted that we're leaving the single market. <laughs> but it remains our intention to achieve a partnership that's so close as to not require specific measures in relation to Northern Ireland. Maybe today, yeah, maybe today, yeah, girl, ask the way. Maybe today. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.